Hello, everyone. Good morning.、Uh, my name is Hui.、Um, it's like when you say Hu and Wei at the same time. That's my name. And very recently, I learned that it's also very similar to a type of cheese.、Uh, if you know what that is.、Um, so I'm fairly new here. So if we haven't had a chance to have a little chat, please find me after sermon. I would love to say hi to you.、Uh, and I'm super excited today. I'll be、uh, reading the Bible for the second Sunday at Advent.、Uh, I'll be reading. Matthew, Matthew chapter two, verse one through twelve, in Mandarin Chinese, and you have to read after me. No, just kidding, <laughs> just kidding. English word will be provided on the screen. 在西律王的那些日子里，耶稣诞生在犹太的伯利恒。当时有几位博士从东方来到耶路撒冷，他们问。生下来做犹太人之王的那一位在哪里？我们在东方看见了他的心，就来了要朝拜他。西律王听说了，就惶恐不安，全耶路撒冷的人也与他一起不安。西律就召集了所有祭司长和民间的一经文士，向他们询问基督诞生在哪里。他们对西律说：“在犹太的伯利恒。”因为借着先知有这样的记载，犹大之地的伯利恒啊，你在犹大的首要张城乡中绝不是最小的，因为将来有一位领袖要从你那里出来，他要牧养我的子民以色列。于是西律悄悄地召唤了那几个博士，向他们询问那颗星出现的时间，然后打发他们前往伯利恒，说。你们去仔细巡查有关那孩子的事，一旦查出来了，就向我报告，好让我也去拜他。他们听了王的话，就去了。看呐、啊，他们在东方看见的那颗星在前面引导他们，直到那孩子所在的地方就在头上头停住了。他们看见那颗星，就极其欢喜快乐。他们进了屋子。看见那孩子与他的母亲玛利亚在一起，就伏伏拜那孩子，然后打开他们的宝盒，把黄金、乳香和墨药作为礼物献给他。他们在梦中得了神的启示，不要回到西路那里去。于是，他们就从另一条路回到他们的家乡去了。And this is the word of God. Thank you so much, Wei. So this morning, I wanted to begin the sermon with a couple of questions that I think are going to reveal something about just the true, beautiful diversity of our church family. Questions I think you're going to have some strong reactions to. Questions whose answers will cause us to just marvel at the way we are able to love each other and support each other and hang out together, even though we are so different. Are you ready? Okay. First question. What flavor should green taste like? Lime or apple? Who says lime? Who says apple? Yeah. Okay.、Uh, should toilet paper be rolled under the roll or over the roll? Who says under? You're wrong. Who says over? <laughs> okay. Does ketchup belong on a hot dog? Who says yes? Wow. Wow. Okay. Who says no? Yeah. Okay.、Uh, 
This one has caused, like, strife in families. Mac or PC? Who says Macs? Mac, I'm a Mac user. Yeah. Who says PCs? Yeah. Okay. Uh, two more. Uh, cats or dogs? Who says cats? Cats. Who says dogs? Hands down. Yeah. Okay. And one last question. At the risk of tearing the church apart, does pineapple belong on a pizza? Yes or no? What? What? Okay, who says no? (laughs) My goodness, we have some strong opinions on these things, don't we? (laughs) Most of us had strong first reactions to these questions. Most of these questions did not require a lot of thought. We had a gut instinct about which was the answer for us. So, Matthew's story that we just heard read by Hue is telling us the story of the birth of Jesus by telling us about two strong reactions to the announcement of Jesus' birth. Two different reactions that came from what was already deep inside the people involved. So he introduces some new characters into the story here. Uh, He first tells us that some magi from the east came looking for a baby who'd been born to be king of the Jews, They said they'd seen a star that announced that a new king has been born. And these verses tell us two very different reactions to this news of the birth of a new king. And Matthew, what he's doing here, he's using these two reactions of the two characters in the story to challenge us about our response to Jesus. Matthew's big idea in this little section, in this passage of scripture, it's it's really a question. Matthew's big idea is this. How will we respond to the announcement of King Jesus? How will we respond? Will we respond like Herod, or will we respond like the Magi? Herod or the Magi, how will we respond? So we're going to talk a little bit about Herod and about the Magi and about their two very different responses to the announcement of the birth of Jesus. So let's talk first about Herod. So Herod had been appointed the king of Israel by Caesar Augustus, who was a friend of his. His ascent to the throne had been brought about by war, murder, betrayal, aligning with the power of Rome. Herod wasn't really Jewish. He just wanted the power that he received by being the king of somewhere. That's what Rome did, okay? Caesar would appoint these client kings in all the lands that he conquered. So these kings were essentially just puppet governments who enacted the will of Rome wherever they happened to be the king. Uh, There's a first century historian, Josephus, who wrote a lot about Herod. And in my study this week, my goodness, did I learn some interesting things about King Herod. Herod liked power. He liked money. He spent a lot of money building up his kingdom. He rebuilt dilapidated cities. He constructed these huge monuments to Rome. He famously rebuilt this magnificent and impressive temple in Jerusalem, It replaced the one that had been destroyed centuries earlier by Babylon and was meagerly constructed in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Herod liked to rule over an impressive kingdom, and so he spent a lot of time and money building up Israel during his reign. Herod was also famously cruel, greedy, egocentric, and paranoid. He killed his enemies or anyone he suspected of being an enemy. He murdered one of his ten wives. He had two sons executed because they were arguing about who would secede him on the throne after he died. 
He actually even broke into King David's tomb and stole some of the gold furniture that was there. Um, And here's my favorite terrible story about Herod. When Herod knew he was going to die, he knew that the people would probably not mourn for him. He knew he was not really well-liked by the people. And so he ordered that men from all over the country be brought to the sports arena in Jerusalem. And on his deathbed, he ordered that at the moment of his death, those men should all be executed so that there would be grief in the land, even if it wasn't for him. Even if the mourning wasn't for him, there would be mourning on the day of his death. Thankfully, his children didn't follow that order. They sent all those men home. But that is the kind of man that Herod was. This is really important background for us to know when we look at what this text says about King Herod. So the text says, When King Herod heard, he was disturbed. When he heard that there were magi who had come and said there was a new king, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And then verse 7 and 8 say that Herod called the magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Verse 3 says that King Herod heard about these magi from the east, looking for the newly born king of the Jews, and he was disturbed. That Greek word there, tarasso, it means agitated, like boiling water, roiling over the side of a pan. It's quite a word picture. This is what Herod felt like. He was agitated because he was the king of the Jews. And he would not allow anyone to usurp his position. He'd worked hard for this position. He'd murdered for this position. He's not going to let some baby take his place. So Herod's reaction to this news of Jesus was as quick and involuntary as some of you all on the question of whether or not pineapple belongs on pizza. He didn't need to think about it. He didn't need to pause and consider what this meant. He reacted immediately out of the overflow of what was already in his heart. Selfishness, greed, and an insatiable need for power. Interestingly, the text says that all Jerusalem was agitated, boiling, too. The text doesn't really say why Jerusalem was agitated, but I would guess there are probably a couple reasons. I'd guess that first, the wealthy and the powerful were agitated because of what this meant for their positions of wealth and power. Right? New kings often executed, got rid of anyone who was loyal to the old king. So those that were in Herod's circle were probably worried about mostly themselves and their own future. The common people, secondly, were probably terrified of what Herod's response would be. They knew him to be brutal and paranoid. They wondered probably what his fit of rage over this news would bring about. And next week, we're going to read about the devastating answer to that question. But the people were afraid, and with good reason. So when Herod tells the Magi to return and tell him where the baby is so that he can go and worship the child, the first readers of Matthew knew immediately that that was not what he really intended to do. They knew that power-hungry Herod would never bow to another king of the Jews. It was obvious he was lying to the Magi so that he could arrange for the child's death. Herod was comfortable with the way things were. He had power, he had wealth, he had prestige. Herod did not want a new king. A new king was a threat to his way of life. Herod's response to the arrival of the Jewish Messiah was one of agitated, rebellious defiance. He was not interested in a new king of the Jews, 
because more than Herod wanted what God wanted, he wanted his position. He wanted his power. His reaction to the news of Jesus was involuntary. It came from a place deep inside him that more than anything else wanted power. Listen, over and over, the Bible is clear. The kingdom of God is great news for the oppressed and terrible news for the tyrant. Matthew is pointing again to the reality that God's kingdom has come to upset the power structures of our world. In these verses, Matthew is setting us up to see Jerusalem, the seat of religious and political power, Jerusalem, as steadfastly opposed to the mission of Jesus. It begins here, and we're going to see it through the entire book of Matthew, especially as we get to the passion narratives about Jesus' suffering and death. When again, we're going to return to this title, the King of the Jews. To Matthew's audience, it was clear that the political structure of the day was threatened by the arrival of Jesus. Because King Jesus overturns every single earthly power structure. And Matthew is challenging his readers to consider any way we might be like Herod. If what we really want is power more than we want the kingdom of God. I think this is especially important for us, Harbor, to remember as we head into another election cycle next year. Our hope is not in any political power structure of this world. Yes, we are citizens of a country where we have the right to vote, and we should do that. And as we do that, we need to follow our conscience and consider as we vote what our voting will do to bring about the kingdom that Jesus talks about where the poor are blessed and the merciful are praised and peace is pursued and the least of these are cared for. But we need to go into an election year clear that our hope is not in who sits at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. Because just like Herod, just like the elite of Jerusalem, the political system in our country is often most concerned with holding on to power, sometimes at any cost. And the Bible tells us that when we side with political power, we might just find ourselves opposing the kingdom of God. As people of God, our first loyalty, our first citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. And there is room for only one king there. So this is the response of Herod. Herod's response of agitated defiance was involuntary, based on the hunger for power and wealth and comfort that already existed in his heart. Let's look at the Magi. Let's think about their response. So Magi were a priestly class from the kingdom of Persia. Their job was divination, astrology, reading the stars for signs, interpreting dreams, They're like the magicians that Nebuchadnezzar called on in the Old Testament to interpret his dreams in the book of Daniel. Another magi in the Bible is Balaam uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, who was hired by the king of Moab to curse the people of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, but who ended up only being able to speak blessings over them. And so it seems like the king of Persia, where they were from, had sent them to congratulate Israel on the birth of the new king whose birth they'd seen in their reading of the stars. The funny thing is, guys, the Torah and the New Testament, they prohibit divination, astrology, things like that. God says over and over again, listen, you don't need to look to the stars. You can just ask me. I made the stars. So just come ask me for wisdom. 
But here we see God again working in unexpected ways. It's almost as if God were saying to the Magi, okay, you're looking for me in the stars. You don't know you can ask me, so I'll meet you there. I'll meet you in the stars. You're looking for signs? Okay, I'll give you a sign. And so the God who made the stars in his great love for these Magi showed up right where they were looking to tell them a new king had been born. Go find him. So the Magi set off to pay homage to the new king, and understandably, they head to Jerusalem. If a new king were to be born in Israel, surely he would be born in Jerusalem, the seat of religious and political power, right? Jerusalem is where the palace was. That's where the king would be born. Interestingly, they don't go to Herod. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They didn't go to Herod. The Magi knew he wasn't the king they were looking for. Instead, they asked around, Where is the king? Where is this new king? And as we read, Herod, in his distress, immediately acted and called the priests and the teachers of the law to come together to help him figure out where this Messiah was supposed to be born. Herod knew there was some kind of prophecy about a Jewish Messiah king, but he wasn't a faithful Jew himself, so he didn't know much more than that. So he called together the priests and said, tell me more. What's the deal? Where is this baby supposed to be born? And this is their response in verses 5 and 6. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. The prophecy quoted here is a loose paraphrase of Micah 5, verses 2 and 4. And it seems to be a pretty well-known prophecy because in the book of John, People are arguing over whether or not Jesus can be the Messiah. Some people who know that Jesus is from Galilee, they argue Jesus can't be the Messiah because the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. So it seems like people had this story kind of, it was common knowledge, the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And again, Matthew is here emphasizing that God's way is not the way people think things should be. These magi think, oh, the Messiah would be born in Jerusalem, in the seat of power, in the palace. But no, in God's plan, the Messiah is born in Bethlehem, this inconsequential place inhabited by people on the margins, peasants, people like Mary and Joseph. The Magi are told that Bethlehem is to be the birthplace of this new king, and their journey is reoriented from the seat of political power to the Messiah himself. And so they set off again, and the star guides them right to the place where Jesus and his family are staying. Verse 9 says, After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now, people have tried to figure out over the years what recorded event in astrological history could have been what these magi saw. Some think maybe there was a comet, although no comet we know of would have been in the sky in that time frame. Some people think maybe the Magi saw the alignment of Jupiter and Saturn, which happened three times in 7 BC, around the time Jesus was probably born. Some have suggested that maybe the star was like the pillar of fire that in the Old Testament led the people of Israel through the wilderness. But the text doesn't say. 
The text declines to give us any more information than that a star somehow led these magi right to the place where Jesus was living. Matthew wasn't concerned with exactly what this phenomenon was because his point is that these magi were divinely led to find Jesus, that God led them to what they were seeking. Again, Matthew makes the point that when we are seeking God and his kingdom, we'll find it. God wants to be found. And if these magi were seeking answers in the stars, if they didn't know they could ask God for help directly, God was happy to use nature, to use the stars, to help them find their way to him. And the text tells us their reaction to the news of finding the king. Verses 10 and 11 say, When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That word that the NIV translates overjoyed, it does not give us the scope of what the Greek text says here. It says in the Greek that when the Magi saw the star stopping over the place where Jesus was, they echareson karan megalen sphodra, four words, Rejoiced a lot, great joy. (laughs) Four words to emphasize the magnitude of their joy when they saw the king. And then they bowed down and worshiped him. Literally prostrated themselves to show honor to this king. They gave him luxurious gifts fit for a king, gold and frankincense and myrrh. This event recalls when the queen of Sheba came to visit King Solomon and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense. Again, Matthew tying Jesus to the line of David. It also echoes the words of Isaiah and a psalmist who both speak of the kings of other nations coming to the bright light of Israel, bringing gifts of gold and incense. And by the way, the connection with these prophecies about kings coming to God, bringing gold and and incense, that's what led to the tradition of calling the Magi kings in like the third century. That's where we get the song, We Three Kings, even though the Bible doesn't say they were kings. Just a little tidbit of free information from Katie. (laughs) But the Messiah is recognized and worshipped first in the book of Matthew by Gentiles. Matthew's bringing us back to this again. It's the outsiders. It's pagans who are practicing divination that first bow down and worship Jesus in Matthew. See, the religious people knew the prophecy about where the Messiah was to be born. They're who told the Magi to go look in Bethlehem. They have all the same information the Magi do. But the text does not record that any of them joined the quest for the Messiah. The religious people stayed comfortable in their powerful positions in Jerusalem while the pagans worshipped the king in the home of peasants. The leader of God's people plots to murder the Messiah, and the outsiders offer him gifts and worship. Just as the response of Herod was an involuntary reaction based on what was already in his heart, we see the quality of the Magi's hearts and their involuntary reaction of worship. The Magi were seeking the king. They wanted to find him. And something about this small child led them to overflow with joy when they found him 
They had likely been sent by their king to honor the new king of a neighboring land. But what we see here in their reaction is far beyond the duty of presenting an ally with gifts. Their reaction is joy. They had been seeking. And what they found was even greater than what they thought they'd find. We don't know exactly what was happening in their hearts. We don't know if these magi dedicated the rest of their lives to the worship and obedience of the God of Israel. We just know that they recognized the Messiah when they saw him and that their reaction to finding him was joyful worship. So Matthew includes this narrative to challenge us. What is our reaction to the news that Jesus is king? Is it one of agitation, frustration, defiance? Are we so comfortable with the way things are in our lives that we don't want to hand the throne over to the rightful king. For Herod, the news of a king was a threat to his way of life, a threat to his position, a threat to his comfort, a threat to his power. And Matthew wants us to see that when we like things the way they are, our comfort, our independence, our feeling of power, the news of a king can only ever evoke a feeling of agitation. If we find ourselves resisting the rule of Jesus in our hearts, resisting changes to our world that would make it look more like God's kingdom, Matthew's inviting us to repent, to acknowledge the truth that we like our control, we like our comfort, to confess that sometimes we want those things more than we want God's kingdom. But to the Magi, the news of a king led to exceedingly great joy. They wanted to find the king. That's what this season of Advent is for. To look for the king. To lean into our longings for what is not as it should be. To acknowledge in ourselves and in the world around us what we are still waiting to see completed. Because when we see the brokenness in our world, when we see the devastating effects of sin on our own hearts, on our relationships, on everything, then we will long for a king who will repair it all. We will long for a king who will come and take over. Because we see the staggering inadequacy of humans to rule the world. So Matthew's challenging us to consider the posture of our hearts toward the coming of King Jesus. To consider if we really want King Jesus or if we would like to set up our own little kingdom. To consider if our honest reaction to King Jesus is resistant agitation or joyful worship. So this morning, just like we do each week, we're going to have some time of silence for you to ask God to show you what is in your heart this Advent, to show you your posture towards the coming king. Ask for his help to sincerely long for the coming of the king, and and when you're ready, come forward and take communion. Communion is for everyone here at Harbor. If you want King Jesus, communion is for you. Come forward and take communion when you're ready. These symbols of his body and his blood that were broken and shed to free us from sin's hold. This morning as you eat and as you drink, do that as your prayer of longing for more of Jesus. 
when we long for the king to come, then the news that he's here is received only with joy. Our only response is to fall down in worship and gratitude that the king has come. Let's pray. Jesus, you know our hearts. You know that the truth is sometimes we are more like Herod than we are the Magi. Sometimes we resist what it is you're up to because we like the feeling of control we have. But we want to be a people that surrenders to you, surrenders to the work you want to do, even when that means letting go of something we've come to value. So this morning, God, in your mercy and grace, you want to speak to us. You want to be found by us. And so will you speak to each one of us here about where our hearts are at this morning? Some of us are longing for you because we see the reality of the brokenness in this world. Will you bring comfort there? Comfort knowing that you are our coming king. You came once and you are coming again. And when you do, you will fix everything. And God, anything in us that's resistant to that, resistant to the changes you want to make in us or in our world, will you lovingly call that out in us this morning? Will you invite us to taste of your kingdom and see that it's good, it's better than what we are holding so tightly to? Thank you that you speak to each of us just where we are. So do that again in these moments, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.